This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. So, hello, everyone, <laughs> um, and welcome to this evening's conversation at RAND. I'm Darlene Opfer, the Director of RAND Education and a Distinguished Chair in Education Policy here at the RAND Corporation. I'm really pleased that you're all able to join us tonight. I think we've all seen news stories about how students and teachers are adapting to new teaching methods and new assessments as a result of the education policy shift to Common Core standards. Tonight we're going to try to demystify this topic and explore Pennsylvania's approach to education standards and assessment, address what challenges remain, and consider what the future might hold. We have a tremendous panel with us tonight who can address these questions from a local, state, and a national perspective. We also have a great audience here tonight filled with friends both old and new. For those of you who are not very familiar with RAND, RAND is a nonprofit, nonpartisan institution dedicated to improving policy and decision-making through research and analysis. We were founded in Santa Monica, California more than 65 years ago, and we established the Pittsburgh office in 2000. We have approximately 1,800 researchers and support staff working in offices around the globe, and more than 10% of them work here in the Pittsburgh office. RAND focuses on the issues that matter most to all of us, including health, education, national security, international affairs, justice, the environment, infrastructure, governance, and I could go on. Um, across, those, across our locations and these field, fields, we share a strategic vision, which is to be the world's most trusted provider of research and ideas. And as a nonprofit institution, philanthropic Philanthropic support is vital to us and has made possible some of our most visionary work. And on that note, I'd like to take a moment to extend a warm welcome to the members of our policy circle joining us this evening. Thank you for being here and for supporting RAND. The policy circle is a philanthropic community of individuals committed to supporting RAND's nonpartisan objective research. Contributions to RAND in the form of general support to the policy circle or targeted gifts directly to work happening here in Pittsburgh all help to extend the impact of our work and make the world a safer, more secure, and more prosperous place for all of us. In the past year, unrestricted support from our donors has enhanced our agility and also our responsiveness in the face of emerging questions that require the kind of solutions that RAND researchers are well poised to inform. Donor dollars have been essential to advancing our efforts across a wide array of, array of research questions. For example, support has been critical in seeking to understand the reforms and the policy implications associated with the Affordable Care Act and has also funded a major undertaking to produce a guide for policymakers, citizens, educators, and the media on the most critical global choices and challenges that will face our next U.S. president. If you have any questions about joining the policy circle or other ways you can support RAND, please talk to Tamara Keough, who's back here, if you haven't met her already. Conversations at RAND, which we're having tonight, is a series we host for our policy circle donors, policymakers, academic and community partners, and invited guests. We are always grateful that we can include a wider audience to learn more both about RAND and also to participate in discussions surrounding timely, big topic issues impacting our region and the nation. Without further delay, let's turn to tonight's program. We regret that Dr. David Volkman is unable to join us tonight. As you may have heard, the Pennsylvania budget impasse has resulted in a ban on all non-essential travel. So he is unable to join us this evening. However, I'm excited to introduce a new addition to our panel, Kathleen Kubelik, who is seated three from me. 
who joins us as both the president of the Western Region of the Pennsylvania Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development, and also as director of curriculum, instruction, and assessment at the Midwestern Intermediate Unit. Also on the panel, we have Allison McCarthy. She's executive director of curriculum, instruction, and assessment for the Pittsburgh Public Schools. My colleague, Laura Hamilton, who serves as associate director for RAND Education, and our moderator tonight, Stanley Thompson, director of the Heinz Endowments Education Program. Uh, you can take a longer look at their individual and remarkable bios um, that are in the printed program to learn more about each of them. Stan will launch our discussion with some questions for the panelists, and then we'll open it up uh, to questions from you all from the audience. And so with that, I will turn it over to Stan. Thank you, Kyle. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you, Darlene. Uh, welcome and good evening. Um, I think it was Mark Twain who made the statement that uh, I never let my education get in the way of my learning. I hope that that will be your sentiment this evening as we uh, hope to provoke a kind of dialogue that uh, may get you uh, up and probably uh, moving around, asking your own questions at some point. Um, especially in light of things that are happening here in the state and things that are happening as part of a national dialogue here in the United States. So I'd like to begin this evening with uh, posing a question that I hope all of our panelists will, uh, will be eager to answer. Each of you is responsible for, um, in part, for educational outcomes um, with constituents in your respective uh, areas. And uh, in light of PA core and student expectations, outcomes for student expectations, um, what are your priorities? And as a follow-up question, what are the challenges that prevent you from implementing those priorities? And, and I'm going to turn to, um, to Dr. Kublik and, uh, and ask from your perspective, how would you respond to that? By way of background for everyone, intermediate units serve as regional service agencies that provide programs and support to school districts within a geographic area. And I'm currently um, at the Midwestern Intermediate Unit, which is housed in Grove City, and we serve Butler, Lawrence, and Mercer County. And within that structure, support 27 very different school districts. And the, the irony of my serving in, in Dr. Volkman's stead is that Intermediate units work very, very closely with the Department of Education, and we've had an opportunity to align our goals with the department's goals and help to do some of the work that the, the streamlining of the department has precluded them from doing with the field directly. And I think in terms of the core, we provide many, many different initiatives to support students along a continuum of learning, students who have very significant cognitive challenges to students who are are receiving gifted instruction, but our charge is to ensure that our partner school districts have the resources and capacity that they need to meet the needs of their students. And while that's a very broad brush set of expectations, what that looks like, in, in my case, those 27 school districts is as different as the demographics and the geography of each of those 27 districts. We have districts that are very, very small with very limited resources to ones that are very, very um, well-resourced and serve a very large geographic area. So our challenge has been to work with the department to frame the, the initiatives that districts are mandated to, to implement in a way that is meaningful to them and, and for the students that they serve. And relative to the core, I think that it's the, in my 20 years in education, I think it's the most challenging and exciting time in the field. And I think those two things go hand in hand. If we are, if we are um, challenged by the work that we're expected to do, that's what, that's what drives our passion and that's what, what drives us to work very diligently to meet the needs of our students. And we have a group of students in every, in every district in Pennsylvania that is diverse. It's diverse in the supports that they have at home. It's diverse in the homes from which they come to us. And it's diverse with the, in the needs that they have both socially, emotionally, cognitively, and, and all of those things are what confront teachers each and every day. 
The shift to the PA core standards, while not lacking in controversy, I think personally is a very positive change for Pennsylvania. The evolution of the common core standards to the way they've been framed in Pennsylvania represents the commitment that we have as a commonwealth to support the local uh, perspective. Our districts are very much committed to who they are defined as the, in terms of their local boundaries and their constituencies. And we've supported that in enabling Pennsylvania to modify the core in a way that is true to the, the values and, and um, belief systems of Pennsylvania. Again, that creates another level of complexity. And when you talk about priorities and challenges, the priorities are very clear. We're charged with ensuring that students are ready for whatever greets them in their post-secondary life, whether it's work in the workforce, whether it's a post-secondary education of some sort. Our charge as educators is to create that post-secondary opportunity for every child. Getting students from where they are to that outcome looks as different as every face that enters our classrooms each day. And we are charged with equipping our school districts to meet that challenge. That equipment varies drastically from school district to school district. So we need to make sure that there's buy-in, and that's been significantly challenging. There's a significant amount of misinformation about what the PA core represents. Um, there's a significant misunderstanding in terms of what it means to the autonomy that a teacher has in the classroom and the way in which they provide instruction to their students. And our, our responsibility is to ensure that the public is aware that this is the path that's going to ensure that our students are poised to enter the world in which they're going to live, that they have skills, that they have a conceptual background, that they have depth and breadth of understanding that's going to enable them to be successful in whatever path that they choose. So our priorities are to create that world for our 21st century graduates from any institution in Pennsylvania, regardless of what their zip code is, they need to enter our world post-secondary ready. Challenges, resources, funding, uh, consistency and equity across, across school districts, staffing, all of those things are, are challenges that we face each and every day. So from a service agency standpoint, we need to get to know our constituents, we need to help them pool their resources, think differently about the way they provide service, work with teachers and administrators to understand what quality instruction looks like and what the strategies that need to be delivered in those classrooms need to be to help that outcome become a reality for all of our students. And that requires a significant amount of time and professional development. And those are where we commit most of our efforts and have the greatest impact with student achievement. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Allison, from a local sure. perspective, how would you respond to that question? So I agree with so many of the things that you said. Um, and in terms of priorities, um, from a local perspective, our main priority is making sure that every single Pittsburgh public school kid that walks through our doors gets a high quality, rigorous, and relevant learning experience pre-K to 12. Um, and regardless of their socioeconomic background, their race, their um, uh, language background, whatever it might be, that is our main priority. It's, um, you know, we want kids to leave and be ready for college and career, but we want them to go through a K-12, pre-K-12 system that is engaging and is interesting and makes learning fun and meets their needs at the same time. Um, so just in terms of the transition to the PA core, um, as a district, we do believe in the, in, the, in, the, in the common core and the PA core standards. We do um, think that they're much, much more rigorous, and we see that um, all the time. Um, but we do understand that this is the level. These are the expectations that we need to hold our students and our teachers to to make sure that our students exit in 12th grade being ready for uh, whatever greets them on the other side, be it college or a career. There, this is a major shift on, um, on the part of our students. We're asking our students to do uh, tremendously more than they've, had, they've been asked to do in the past, but it's also a tremendous ask of our teachers, um, who many of them are having to really change their instructional practice. There's a lot of teachers out there who have been doing the, these instructional practices for a long time, which is wonderful, because then we can lean on these experts to help us 
uh, move the instructional practice of other teachers. But these are things that don't happen overnight. Um, and one of you know some of the challenges that you brought up were professional development and simply time. Time is a resource, time, money, all of those things. It's very difficult to um, do this in a way that's very focused and is coherent and for teachers to feel like um, this isn't one, some new, one, one, one new thing or some additional thing that's going to go away if I wait it out um, for a couple of years, right? And then the next thing will happen. Um, and that, to us, that is a challenge um, uh, in, in terms of the, the PA core, Common Core. Um, our teachers, our students, and our parents uh, need a lot of support, as well as our community members, because we have incredible partners in this work that support us in, in, in supporting families and working with families and students. And that for us was a little bit of a gap in the beginning in which we realized we really had to reach out and make sure that anybody who was working with our students and our families understood that, um, you know, what are some of the major shifts um, in terms of what students need to know and be able to do and where are the resources um, for, for things that can, can help support that. Um, and you know, you brought, there's a lot of misconceptions and there, there's, it's very political and um, you know, a lot of people have different opinions about what it means and what it um, is, is requiring and what, um, what it's asking students to do. Um, I want to be clear though that our teachers and our students here in Pitts, they can do it. Our students can meet the level of the expectations, our teachers can too. They absolutely can do it, every single one of them. Um, and so while it might take time, right, because it doesn't happen overnight, it takes the, the resources and, and the professional development, there is the capacity there to do it and there is the will. Um, and of course, in our students, there's, I mean, our students can absolutely do it. Um, some of the challenges that we've faced, um, funding is an issue, especially this year um, with the uh, I mean, the budget impasse that kept uh, Dr. Volkman from being here tonight. It's it's difficult to describe um, what uh, what a challenge uh, truly that is um, because you um, aren't able to make too many long. There there's there's limits on some of the long range planning um, that you can do, and it's very frustrating um, from a central office perspective when. You know, people are asking you, well, when are we going to do this? And how is this going to happen? And everyone's got the right ideas. Everyone wants to do the work. Incredibly hardworking people. But, you know, you may, you may just not have the resources. And, and that's not just with the governor's budget, but other things as well. Um, from the curriculum um, and assessment standpoint, it's been a major challenge to um, figure out alignment um, of materials and of assessments because um, we started doing this work back in uh, 2011, 2012, 12, 13, and we were doing a lot of sort of retrofitting, if you will, of our materials. And, you know, as we continue to revise, it gets a lot better and a lot better, but teachers sometimes feel like it's a moving target then, right? Just leave it the way it is, let me do it, let me learn it. But, you know, we were getting smarter about all of this work just as, you know, our teachers were and as were, were others. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't know if there's any you know, textbook you know, publishers here or anything like that, but we, um, we've bought the first edition uh, of things before. Uh, and you know, it's something that we were very conscious that we wanted to avoid. Um, we wanted to, especially because we didn't adopt Common Core, right? And we're not using Parker Smarter Smart Balanced. You know, it's not exactly straightforward for us. And so um, that has been a challenge. Um, and, you know, Inherent in that challenge, though, is this idea that, um, okay, we'll just buy the shiniest, newest, most aligned curriculum, and it will fix our problems. Well, no, it won't. Um, a good curriculum, aligned curriculum really helps, but it's that teacher instructional practice that, you know, is the most important thing. So where we've kind of landed right now, it, as we've, you know, kind of are, you know, thinking about how to move forward when we need to adopt literacy materials, math materials, math uh, science materials, and we know that not everything is possible, get the, get the materials in the best place that we can and then focus on the instructional practice and make sure that we're supporting teachers and purposefully planning for their students, knowing the standards, understanding what, what deeply understanding what students need to know and be able to do. Um, 
just in terms of assessments, I, you know, a lot of Pennsylvania, I mean, Pennsylvania, we've been hit very, very hard um, with the, the PSSAs this year. Um, we saw the same decline um, in Pittsburgh. Uh, we, our, our decline very much mirrored the, the decline at the state level. And we saw it coming because other states who had been administering Common Core aligned assessments, we sort of knew what to expect. We tried to prepare our board. We tried to prepare our community partners, that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, it's extremely discouraging. Um, and we can talk all day about how it's a new assessment. You can't compare it to the old assessment. It's a baseline. Um, in, a, in a public school system that um, you know, isn't knocking it all out of the park all the time, um, it, it's really hard to combat such an incredible drop in uh, assessments, uh, scores, um, especially um, among our African-American students. Um, it, it's just really, really discouraging um, for, for people at every level. Um, and so thinking you know, about, all right, so what? Now what? Right? That's kind of what we've tried to, tried to get to is we know what the data says. We know all the facts. Now what are we going to do about it? And we have to be very purposeful um, and clear about that. Um, and then the last challenge that I wanted to, to highlight is that um, one big challenge that we face is, especially in light of our, our uh, lower assessment scores, specific to uh, PSSA, not so much Keystone, is how do we avoid making schools and making classrooms just about the test and make it a drill and kill testing environment? It's very easy to just focus on what's the eligible content and like jamming it down kids' throats instead of, again, coming back to this idea that our kids need these rich, rigorous, relevant learning experiences. Um, so we've been, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about the test is important. We want to raise test scores, but it's not the, the end-all, be-all. It's not everything. It's not the only thing that matters. And how can we make sure that we're still uh, providing just wonderful learning experiences um, that prepare our kids for, for college and career. Um, but I will say it's very difficult to tell a teacher or to tell a principal that a test doesn't matter when it has, or it, it doesn't, you know, it matters, but it doesn't matter too much, right? We're not taking it too seriously, or we want to be careful that it's not our main focus when it has the level of accountability that it does. Um, it, it's, it's really hard to, um, to, to say that to a teacher or to a, to a principal. Um, and to in, in this era of um, you know high stakes testing, so thank you, Allison. So, Laura, you're approaching this from uh, slightly a different angle. Uh, being a researcher, um, if you could tailor the question, I guess to <laughs> to meet your particular needs, how would you respond to what are your priorities and and what are the challenges of implementing? those priorities in the work that you do? Right, so, you know, I think as a, as a research organization and one that's really committed to um, helping decision makers at all level and, you know, make better decisions, um, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do right now is to gather systematic information um, across the country about what's happening with, with Common Core and with assessment and accountability systems and then find a way to use that information to help, you know, local educators as well as, you know, state and federal policymakers make better decisions, create better legislation, and so forth. Um, so one of the, the areas that we're focused on, and we have been focused on for a long time, um, is, is sort of building better accountability systems. So we're not talking a whole lot about accountability here, but in some ways, and, and Allison just alluded to this, um, you know, teachers are being held accountable for these scores. Children, to some degree, are being held accountable for the scores. Um, and so we need to be thinking about what are the incentives that that produces, how does it shape practice, and, and what have we learned from our decades of research that would help us, you know, provide guidance on how to do that better. Um, I want to acknowledge I've got a lot of colleagues in the room here, and so that I hope I hope they'll chime in when we open up the discussion, because they're all doing work that's very relevant to this. Um, but I think that, you know, so some of our priorities when we're talking with folks about how to, you know, improve their assessment and accountability systems um, have to do with rethinking accountability so that we're not, you know, I think the term accountability has a, a negative connotation. People think about it as a way of labeling or a way of, 
you know, assigning rewards or sanctions. Um, and really, we'd like to think about it as a process of continuous improvement. So it's a way um, for people to get on the same page in terms of setting goals, um, bringing all of the stakeholders together to do that, um, monitoring progress toward those goals consistently, and then making any necessary changes um, if you see that you're not, you know, headed headed to the path of meeting them. Um, I think another, you know, another recommendation that we've provided um, is that, you know, our accountability system shouldn't be exclusively based on math and reading tests or, or other academic achievement tests. That we need to think about what other kind of information can we include in there, whether it's measures of other attainment in other subjects, um, you know, information about kids' access to higher level courses or extracurricular opportunities. So there's lots of ways to think about. Um, broadening our notion of accountability um, so that it's not so focused on tests and doesn't send the message that this is the one thing that we care about and, and everything else should be um, sort of second tier. Um, I think another aspect of this has to do with how we evaluate teachers. Um, there's been a lot of work in the last decade or so that's really demonstrated that teachers matter um, and that within even within a single school, teachers differ very dramatically in their ability to you know, promote student learning. And that's led to you know, a growing emphasis in districts like Pittsburgh on trying to evaluate individual teachers' performance. Um, at the same time, we want to make sure that those aren't systems uh, that are designed just to sort of weed out the bad teachers, which is the way you sometimes hear about it in the, in the public debate, and that instead it's designed to, again, focus on improvement, really promote professional development through customizing, customizing those opportunities for teachers. And that's something we've been working with Pittsburgh on, and they're clearly um, on the same page with respect to that. Um, so. I think that's that's another key piece of this is really thinking at the teacher level, um, but how do we make teachers better uh, rather than just you know evaluating and, and labeling them? Um, if we think about the challenges, so we've done um, you know we've done a lot of work on assessment standards based accountability over the years. Um, Common Core and the associated assessments are sort of the latest iteration of that, but I think a lot of the lessons that we've learned are applicable. Um, I will mention that we're currently doing um, some work on Common Core that's not yet published, um, but if you looked out there at the, at the materials, we have a, an initiative called the American Teacher Panel and the American School Leader Panel where we, you know, we decided we really need to find out what teachers and principals are thinking about this, you know, these reforms, how they're responding, whether they're getting the supports they need. So these are national panels that will follow educators over time and collect uh, sort of systematic information nationally on, on what's happening. Um, and so through that initiative and through our earlier work, I think some of the challenges we've identified, I'll talk about three that are related to standards implementation. And so the first one, has to do with the need to integrate um, teaching and learning across different subject matters. So what you often hear is that there are common core standards in math and in English language arts, or ELA. Um, and the implication is, is sort of that, well, it's the math teachers and the reading or English teachers who need to worry about this. Um, and in fact, if you look at the ELA standards, the title of that is I think it's Common Core State Standards in English, Language Arts, and Literacy, and History slash Social Science, Science, and Technical Subjects. I think I got that right. It's a very long title. Um, but the message is that um, this isn't just for English teachers. It's not just for reading teachers. This is relevant to anybody who's teaching a subject um, where kids have to read or communicate in some way, which is just about everybody. And so when we survey teachers across the country, um, science teachers, social studies teachers are saying, yes, I'm actually expected to address the English language arts standards in my teaching. Um, the connections for math are a little bit less explicit, but they're still there. And we still hear from teachers that, yes, in fact, I'm expected to you know, address the math standards. So a social studies teacher who's um, you know, teaching, you know, learning about population and maybe using graphs, that instruction needs to be informed by the way that material is presented in the, in the math standards. So this creates um, lots of professional development challenges. It also creates a real need for cross-disciplinary collaboration, um, particularly in secondary schools, which tend to be heavily departmentalized, that it's critical that the reading teacher talk to the science and social studies and math teachers on a regular basis and think together about how to do this. Um, I think a second big challenge, and, and this is, you know, when we hear that, well, this is too hard, like, this fifth grade math is too hard for my fifth graders, they can't do it. Well, you know, I, I 
was so happy to hear you say that they can do it. We know they can all do it. Um, but I think one of the reasons it feels challenging is that um, in a lot of districts, this was sort of adopted all at once. And so if I'm a fifth grade math teacher, the kids coming into my class from fourth grade last year may not have been instructed um, under the Common Core. And the expectations for them are suddenly ramped way up. And so that's one of the reasons we're seeing the changes in test scores. And we're seeing you know, parents frustrated, saying, this is math's too hard. I don't understand it. My kid can't do it. Um, and so the process of, of getting this all in place is going to take several years. It's not something that will happen immediately. Um, the Common Core does a really good job of integrating material over, um, over the grade levels. But you can't get that all at once. And so I think that's, that's another issue that's come up a lot. Um, and then the third thing that I'll mention um, that we've seen a lot of, of um, challenges with is getting the curriculum materials in order to teach this. So you mentioned the, the, you know, the new textbooks. Um, in lots of places, uh, teachers who don't maybe have the access, access to the kind of um, professional development that you guys are providing um, are kind of on their own. You talk to them, and they're sort of going to the web and trying to find um, you know, materials that are aligned to Common Core to address a particular topic. Um, there's a, a set of materials that's referred to as Engage New York that's um, very widely used around here. Um, and you know, one of the issues that raises is people will say, well, we're the Pennsylvania Corps. Why are we using New York materials? Um, but I think the bigger issue is that teachers who don't have um, good guidance for how to do this are sort of grabbing things and, and you know, trying to figure out how to integrate them into their existing curriculum. Um, and that's really, you know, really made, um, made it difficult for them to continue to teach in a coherent way. They've got to um, figure out how, do I, how does my old stuff fit with this new stuff. Um, and so there's a lot of need for um, not just access to high-quality curriculum materials, but guidance on how to integrate that with what you already have if you're not doing a wholesale replacement. Um, so, so those are some of the things that have come up in our work um, around standards across the country, and I think they echo a lot of what we've heard locally. You used accountability in part of your commentary, and so I, I'd like to pick up on something because I, I think um, very often when we hear about assessments, especially when they're narrowly focused on math and ELA, um, there will be one teacher who is oftentimes held responsible for student performance or achievement. And so I guess my question to you is what is the research suggesting about holding one teacher responsible, even though students have multiple teachers that they are interacting with and there are shared attributions that are contributing to that student's, uh, their performance in one way or another. So are there things in, 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 the, in the research that kind of caution against that? Yes, so, um, so there's two relevant bodies of research. One is sort of the technical, what do we know about how these measures work? Um, and what that suggests is that, yes, in fact, uh, student scores in a particular subject are influenced by their teachers in other subjects to some degree. So from that perspective, arguing that the reading teacher should be solely held accountable for the student's reading scores um, doesn't do justice to the fact that there are other folks in the building who are contributing to that. And even aside from those cross-subject connections, um, you've got some kids who work with um, sort of in a pull-out situation, who get special tutoring. Um, you've got team teaching that happens. And so there's all sorts of ways in which this notion that we can attribute test scores to a single individual falls apart. Um, and I think with the Common Core, as we were talking about the integration across subject matters, if anything, that's going to become even, an even bigger problem. The other set of research that's relevant, though, is um, some of the implementation work that we've done around teacher evaluation where you know, we've worked with Pittsburgh and other districts that are adopting, as well as charter, charter school organizations that are adopting performance-based teacher evaluation systems. And so we go in and we talk to the principals and the, and the teachers about it. And there's a lot of ambivalence about what you're raising. So on the one hand, I think most educators agree that they, it's inappropriate for them to be held solely responsible. On the other hand, you have teachers who are in grades or subjects where there is no state or district test. Um, 
And in those cases, a lot of times what the districts will do is assign them a school-level performance measure you know, arguing that, you know, as a school, we all we all have responsibility for these test scores in math and reading, and you get a lot of objections to that because, you know, they'll say, well, you know, these other teachers are freeloading off of me, or I, you know, I I don't have anything to do with that particular subject. Um, so I think the problem we're facing is that we don't have an ideal way to implement one of these systems, and and what that says to me is that. Um, Student achievement should be a part of it because that's really important, but um, we also need other kinds of measures. So a system like Pittsburgh's using that involves classroom observations, um, it involves student surveys, which I think is a, an underrated um, aspect of this, that going in and asking children um, what their experience has been has, can be very enlightening and actually tells us something meaningful about the quality of education. Thank you. Um, I'm going to jump to you, Dr. Kubilik, and um, I know that the common, excuse me, the PA core, got to watch myself there, um, <clears throat> was rolled out, I think initially, about four years ago here in the state, and, um, and I know that there have been places that have kind of gotten ahead of the curve. What did your IU do in preparation for um, the changes that were coming? I mean, what, what did you do to, to kind of get people ready? Because you knew, you heard that this was coming. How did you, how well, did you address that? In any wave of change, in, specifically in Pennsylvania, we have a group of, of constituents who take a wait-and-see approach. And because we're in such a state of evolution, I think that has proven to be successful in some cases. So, you know, the the, the department, the State Department adopted the, the Common Core in 2010 and went through the Independent Regulatory Commission and all of those revisions came in the percentage of, of modification that Pennsylvania was allowed to make to personalize the standards. And so it really hit us as fully implement, for full implementation in 2012. And I think there were many, many districts who said, we're going to have a change in state leadership. This too shall pass. We're just going to wait it out. And those, unfortunately, are some districts who are saying, unfortunately, we thought this was going to pass, and, and here we are. So what we tried to do was say, which we have become very adept at saying in, in a service agency that's subject to change at any moment, is that this is the law of the land as we stand today. And so we're equipping you with the most up-to-date information, the most up-to-date resources to help your system align to what those expectations are. And the guidance we've been given is these are the standards from which our assessments will be constructed and the instruction from which your teachers need to derive their daily lessons. But if I could just take one second to follow up on something that Laura said, I think that there is absolutely a critical need to, to think about the relationship between the teacher and the student. And as the research speaks to the, the importance and value of that relationship, Pennsylvania has taken positive strides in our, in our um, deviation from No Child Left Behind and, and the waiver that Pennsylvania has developed to really look at how do we take ownership for student achievement, and not student achievement just as it relates to competence on the exam, but the achievement of those post-secondary outcomes. And so creating the school performance profile that says, as an educational entity, all of the professionals in this building have a connection with these students. So the obligation for the leadership of that building is to help each professional see what is my impact on the students that come through that door and whether it's direct instruction towards standards or it might be a greeting that keeps that student coming back the following day and enables them to be taught. That's a great movement toward creating an accountability that's about a relationship and not about a punitive, a punitive relationship. Thank you. No, I, I appreciate your adding to uh, Laura's commentary. Um, Allison, there are many districts um, here in the state, uh, Pittsburgh being one of them, that um, have essentially excluded or abandoned uh, science and the arts for the early grades. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, research has shown that these are disciplines that contribute to student growth uh, and community innovation. Um, a concern that I know that some folks have is if indeed that continues to remain low on the priority scale for the district, then how are those students who have not been exposed or have had the opportunity to be certainly engaged in those subjects, down the road, how are they going to catch up and truly be college and career ready, seeing that that is one of the focus uh, focuses, foci, mm-hmm. I should say, of, uh, of the, uh, the PA core? Yeah, um, we, we definitely, uh, that's definitely a challenge for us. Um, and I talked a little bit in the beginning about what is the priority, and it's, again, not just to have kids walk out and, and have met the, the basic, you know, graduation requirements. It's to have, you know, like fully developed, <laughs> creative, critical thinkers, problem solvers, people who, you know, can contribute and make their way through the world and their lives in a way that's, you know, meaningful versus just kids who were able to perform on a, on a math or, or literacy um, assessment. And so I agree. There is absolutely research out there that suggests that kids who have access to art and science, in fact, do better. Um, but for many schools and for many principals, that feels like a risk um, because... I know my kids need to uh, perform on the on the on the reading and the math assessments. So I'll put them in, you know, 120 minutes of literacy, 90 minutes of math. They'll get uh, art every six days, 10 days, whatever it is. And and you know we're we're, we're doing our best here. And so I think that um, one of the ways that that message gets really um, clearly um, communicated is honestly from 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 the top down. Um, and we, I mean, none of our principals, none of our teachers um, say that they don't want their kids to have regular access to art and science and music and all these other things. Um, but again, in the, in the accountability piece, right, that kind of pressure, it's easy to default to 120 minutes of literacy, whatever it might be. Um, and so in Pittsburgh, um, our superintendent and deputy superintendent have been very, very clear that um, there is a, a standard of service that every kid in Pittsburgh um, needs to um, have access to, and it includes access to art, health, PE, world language, access to AP courses, honors courses at the high school level. Um, and I will say that uh, for the past two years, science has become a major priority um, because what we're finding, and we all, I mean, everyone knows this, the, the jobs of the future, right, even the jobs of right now require um, students to have um, that, that background. And so we've been doing a lot of work um, around STEAM um, specifically, but also just making sure kids have access to science um, and really thinking about how we can, how we can, how we can do that in a, in a way that's equitable across all of our schools. Um, and so some schools, you know, like in any, we have 56 schools. Any, any, any district, different schools are going to have different uh, places where they want to focus, different sort of themes or different sort of, you know, uh, priorities that they have. Um, but at a basic level, we have to say that every kid, you know, K through 5 gets science um, and not just in fourth grade and eighth grade when it's tested because, I don't have to tell anyone, it bites, it, it, it doesn't work, right? If you just give kids science instruction in fourth grade and eighth grade, you're not going to, they're not going to do well because then you're forming, you're cramming four years of instruction down a kid's throat in a year and it's, it's, it's absolutely just insane. Um, and, and it's, it's, science is, should be something that's engaging and interesting to kids. It should be, you know, a course in a, in a, in a content area where they, they get to do things a little bit differently. Um, and I think that one of the ways that what we can accomplish that is, um, you mentioned this, is, is to be a little more interdisciplinary. Um, and there's the opportunity much more there at the K, K5, K8 level. But re- being really clear that it's not just math and literacy. It's we can do these things um, across all the content areas, and, and you can 
you can embed some science in your literacy or math, and you can embed some literacy or math in your science and making it more of a coherent learning experience for kids. Um, but we're not, we're not doing kids any favors at all when we don't um, give them access to science and, and the arts and um, you know, all of those other, all those other rich experiences. So. Thanks. Um, before we open questions up to the audience, I, I'd like to give everyone maybe a 30-second um, chance to maybe respond to either something that someone said or perhaps there was a question that you expected from me that uh, you didn't uh, have an opportunity to respond to. So um, I'm going to begin with you, Laura, and then work my way back here. Um, you have 30 seconds. What would you like to say as, your, right, as your parting, as your parting um, commentary? <laughs> well, you know, so, so Allison's comment and your question about, about arts and, and other subjects, you know, got me thinking one of the solutions that's sometimes brought up to address this incentive problem is, well, let's test everything. Mm. Let's test our, and, and, and this is, this is said in all seriousness. Um, you know, I, I once talked to, I, I once saw a social studies teacher, as an eighth grade um, American history teacher, who did just the most fun and creative activities in his classroom. They had debates, they followed elections. Um, and I asked him about this, and he said, well, you know, one of the reasons I can do this is that there's no eighth grade social studies state test. Um, I've got the freedom to engage in this really interesting instruction. So um, so I think the, the, the lesson is that adding tests will change the incentives um, and will make people pay attention to those other subjects, but maybe not in the way that we'd want them to. And so we need to think creatively about accountability systems that don't just rely on tests as the mechanism for you know, helping us identify what are the priorities. Thank you. Allison. Um, 30 seconds isn't a lot of time, and I'm <laughs> quite loquacious, so this is tough for me. But I guess just in response to um, the idea of how do you prepare kids to meet the expectations? How do you fill the gaps in curriculum materials? How do you, you know, fill the gaps in kids' learning? Is um, one of the things that we've been trying to do a lot more um, is let's focus on what kids can do and build from there. Let's talk about what kids are doing, what they can do, and let's not only focus on remediation and filling the gaps. Let's let's sort of flip it a little bit and 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 try to try to be you know in the in the era of where it can be a little discouraging and I, I said it myself where you know it feels very overwhelming it's very challenging um, we've got great kids we've got great teachers and let's and let's start from um, what our kids are able to do uh, versus what the, what what they're not. Thank you, Dr. Hubler. I guess I would like to say two things. Um, I think we need to define accountability not as a bad word. We owe our students accountability. They're, our, they're the product of the work that we do, and I think a level of healthy accountability is not a bad thing. And I also want to make sure that people understand that establishing a set of standards doesn't in any way limit the autonomy that a teacher has to provide rich instruction. These are the things that students need to know and be able to do. The way you get them there is where the art of teaching comes in. The way you develop those relationships with students, the way you bring the content to them is where the effectiveness of our teachers is measured. And the success with which they do that differs period to period, year to year, student to student. And that's where we need to work with teachers to help them see the benefits of the skills that they have and the ways in which they can make those skills come alive in the learning that they create in their classrooms and not to be afraid of setting a, a high standard for our students because we've heard across the board that kids meet the bar where you set it. It's embracing the expectations and addressing the ways in which we can make the expectations genuine for our students and I think the core lends itself beautifully to that. Thank you. And with that, we are going to open up our uh, questions to the audience. And uh, again, please feel free to direct them to any of our panelists. Um, yes, right here. Hi. I'm, I'm Mary Martin, and I'm with Chevron. Um, and by the way, we do have microphones that are going to be coming around. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on the impact 
of the new standards and, and assessments and a, a new focus on rigor and consistent rigor with career and technical tracks. Um, I'm a very satisfied um, graduate of the Pittsburgh Public Schools, but I came from a time when there was a what we called VOTEC track and there was a college track, um, and I don't think we were necessarily respectful in equal ways for both. And uh, my concern is, are we leaving career and technical behind, or are there ways to use these new standards and assessments to improve career and technical training? Sure. Um, I think it's a, an excellent question. Um, in Pittsburgh Public Schools, we have an incredibly ro robust career and technical education program. Um, and um, we've been working, honestly, hand in hand with that department. And they actually have sort of common core math and literacy people that are, on their, that are in their department that work very closely with my department to think about um, how we make sure that we're not leaving any, any group of kids or any pro kids in any specific program behind. Um, but interestingly, the CTE folks have really um, definitely embraced the PA core standards and have, and have said a couple of times, we've, we've been doing this, right? Our kids are reading to open one of these uh, technical manuals that our students have to, to master to, to, to go into a trade. This, the lexile of this is way beyond any lexile level that they're you know, getting in, in the novel in that same grade level. Um, so there's, there's actually been a lot of really nice synergies there. And we've actually learned a lot from our CTE colleagues around how when the bar, the, when the bar is the bar and the bar is very high, um, how you support all your kids in getting there, especially when um, you know, reading, uh, to me personally, reading The House on Mango Street is a lot more engaging than, you know, reading uh, a more technical um, uh, document or text. Um, so it still more work to do there, surely. Um, and I think CTE in Pittsburgh, at least, has kind of changed its reputation in a way where it's not quite such a, seen quite so much as like a, the same level of track that um, I, I've, um, you know, heard people refer to it as before. So, but I, I think it's a, I think it's a great question because, Common Core, PA Core, college and career readiness, right? Yeah, and can I just add that I think you know one of the, you know, as we know, one of the objections to the way CTE has been done in the past is, is this notion of tracking and this idea that we can identify kids early on right. who can succeed in college and we're going to push them this way and then there's some other kids who we think maybe probably can't and we'll send them down this other path. Yeah. And so I, I think the, the as you say, the conversation around that has changed and the idea is that we have high expectations for every single student regardless of what path they take. Um, I think what's critical is that we start very early on in kids' K-12 to careers exposing them to what are the different opportunities out there, what are the educational requirements of those, so that they make the choice, um, and the choice isn't made by somebody else for them, but regardless of what path they choose, they understand that I'm going to be held to these you know, very high standards. And I would just add one piece to that, that I think that the tracks have changed in terms of their value. We've dignified and, and created a whole different perspective around what a technical track opportunity provides. And I think we've created a different conversation around not every student should go to college. It's not whether they're able or not. It's whether that's the right path. And we have a whole need for a workforce that doesn't have that credential. And I think we need to educate our population that parents need to embrace the fact that your child not going to a four-year institution doesn't mean you failed as a parent. It means that that child may be employed and have continuing education that's supported by, as an, through an apprenticeship or through the workforce in a way that's going to enrich the world that we live in in such a different way. And I think just I would just add one more thing. As we think about concrete representative application learning as the hierarchy, technical education turns that in reverse. They're applying that knowledge in a way that sometimes supersedes those other two. And, and kids who go through that three-step track maybe don't arrive at that, but they're starting there. So I think it's created a respect for that type of education that frames it very differently, and I look forward to its future. I'm going to step out of my role as the moderator and kind of chime in here as well. I think one one of the things that's that's very interesting that is help that is happening in a much larger community is this notion of 
students becoming involved in maker spaces. That is going to have an influence on the way we conceive of learning and the way that students will indeed think about pathways as they leave high school and go into career and go into uh, higher, uh, higher co- uh, education um, opportunities. I think that that's one of the things that we probably don't talk enough about. It's this learning ecosystem that is changing. It's no longer simply directed to school spaces, formal schooling. Technology has made schooling, or learning, I should say, something which is ubiquitous. It's something that a student can determine his or her own pathway. They can do it anytime, any place. And so those things have to be taken into consideration as we talk about career and technical education as well as higher education. Yes. Hello, my name is uh, Michael Benison. I have two questions, one for Laura and one for Alison. Laura, I want to find out in your research, especially regarding accountability and performance of teachers, what has your research shown in terms of the difference between teachers who are tenured, like tenured teachers, and teachers who are non-tenured? What has their impact been on student performance? Does that vary, or is it that teachers who are tenured, do, do they have impact? Like, what, what impact does their tenureship have on student performance? That is in your evaluation, assessing teachers. And my question to Alison had to do with, you mentioned that sometimes it's hard to let principals understand that it's not all about test scores. So apart from the test scores, what are your expectations in terms of other factors that can also help principals make sure that students' performance are up to uh, speed or up to the standards that you want apart from test scores? Thank you. So let me make sure I understand. So, so your question is about teachers who, who have received tenure in their districts and those who have not yet received tenure. Um, so, you know, I think, I mean, basically the difference between those groups is that the ones who don't yet have tenure are in their first few years of teaching. Um, tenure is often granted somewhere around year three to five. There are some districts that have, and places that have gotten rid of tenure, but for the most part that's, that's pretty much still how it works. Um, and I think what you see is that in those first couple years of teaching, um, if you're measuring their effectiveness based on student achievement growth, they tend not to be as effective during those first few years. A, a brand new or se- first or second year teacher, um, you know, it takes them a while to figure out what they're doing and get used to the curriculum and get used to this new set of responsibilities. Um, and the, you know, the effectiveness then start, starts to you know, rise as they gain a few years of experience, but then it pretty much levels off. And so on average, a teacher with four years of experience is, is no more or less effective than a teacher with 20 years of experience for the most part. Um, so it's the, those first few years are really important um, for teachers to sort of learn their craft. Um, they need a lot of support. But if they stick it out, generally, um, they'll get to the point where they're performing just as well as, as the more experienced folks. I think that one of the challenges is we see an awful lot of teachers leaving at the end of that first or second year, um, partly because they're not getting enough support. They feel frustrated. They don't feel like they're making a difference. Um, so we really need to put a lot of attention there um, through mechanisms like mentor teachers or other, other ways of providing professional development and support to get them through those, those challenging early years. Did that answer your question? OK. Um, and so you might have to refresh me on all the, the different parts of your question, but um, I, I took the core of your question to mean um, how do we support principals and not just being focused on test and test prep, testing and test prep. Um, one of the things I think, um, and I, don't, I do not mean to suggest that like all of our principals are out there saying the only thing that's important is testing and test prep, and we at the district office are like, no, no, it's not. Principals, they know. They know all the stuff that we know in terms of, you know, what um, what's good for kids. Um, but I think the, the thing that we can do is make sure that um, 
principals and, and teachers too, I think, oftentimes feel like it's their job on the line if they don't get their kids to a certain level in a certain time frame. Um, and I think by, by demonstrating um, that we value, and the, the folks that are supervising principals demonstrate that they value these other things happening in schools and that you're not going to get your hand slapped if kids are outside in a garden or if kids are, you know, in a STEAM lab doing, you know, robot, robotics and coding and whatever else. Um, that we want, that we're, that's, that's what we are promoting as a district and that's what we want to see happening across all of our schools. And I think it's, um, it then becomes, um, and if the message is that the accountability is joint, right? We all own this accountability. Um, I own it. You own it as the principal. Your teacher owns it. The parents got to own it too. Like everyone, there's a joint accountability for it. And not just saying that, but really being purposeful about demonstrating that, I think is, um, I, I think is, the, is, is, the, is a major way um, to do that. Any other questions? Yes, right here. I'm Carol Emerson. I'm with the League of Women Voters, a long time ago teacher as well. Um, so I'm interested in politics and policy as part of the League's uh, Education Study Committee. So looking at current events, would you discuss the, impl the implication of the rather serious audit that has just taken place of the State Department of Education and what has um, fomented quite a bit of discussion in newspapers and on talk radio shows. And of course, it's coming up to be a political year, we understand. But all of you have talked about the need for resources as a major challenge to implementing the standards and, in, and, in, and assessments. Uh, of course, those, those resources come in the form of money from the state, so the budget is one thing. But I'm thinking particularly of the audit and the job that is coming down from the top of our state government. Thank you. I'm more than willing to take off my, my hat again as moderator, it. but uh, <laughs> I'll do that after the rest of you weigh in. Oh, absolutely. I think it's just concerning that um, we entrust the directive that we're being given and the support that we're being given, that the, the accountability that we have to be judicious and, and efficient in our use of resources is commensurate with what's coming from the state level. And so when that's not the case, I think it creates a level of, of discontent and um, distress and, and distrust. Um, and I think that just compounds an already challenging budget time where programs are being um, paused and, and the work has become about making do instead of making progress. I, I think it's unfortunate that um, it's been 16 years since the since a mastery <coughs> plan is my understanding for basic education, and uh, I've I've lived in other states, and I I am a recovering high school and middle school principal, so um, and and have lived in several states where um, mastery plans were indeed developed every five years as should be the case here in Pennsylvania. Um, it's really unfortunate because if you look at what has happened as part of a national dialogue, uh, a lot has occurred over 16 years. I mean, you, you've got charter school legislation that isn't even effectively addressed through your mastery plan. You have some elements of No Child Left Behind that have not adequately been addressed. And of course, Common Core, PA Core, things of that nature. So um, you're really not doing yourself a favor by not rethinking what are those things that we need to really outline as a state and, 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 and be much more intentional about as we move forward. I think if you can tee those things up, 
I think that people are going to understand you do have a sense of direction that does require, then, the requisite funding. I know as a funder, if I don't see a plan or a proposal with certainly a solid budget, I'm not going to fund that particular program. And I, I think that's what you're left with here um, currently in, in the, uh, the state. So it's unfortunate. <laughs> That's because we're on, on tape. That's why. <laughs> well, I'm in the audience and I can hide, and it makes me angry that I, I don't think we have any legislators in the room. Well, I mean, the thing that I would add is, is when things like that are happening at the state level and, and, and changes are being made and there's all these different things, the, frequently the biggest losers are kids. Right. And... Um, that stinks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we have one more time for one more question. As Laura mentioned, Rand is um, fielding the American Teacher Panel and trying to understand a, a lot of things about what teachers think about the Common Core and what kind of professional development they need. And it's nice to hear some of what you've said resonate with what we're finding. Um, we're really trying to get a handle on the kinds of professional development that teachers need. And in, in this resource-constrained environment here in PA right now, it may be really hard to answer this question. But I'm wondering what you think are the greatest PD needs? What kinds of PD do teachers need most right now? And is it, is it hard to create those PD opportunities when you don't even have a great handle on the kinds of instructional materials that you're going to be using over the course of the next several years? I guess this is mainly for Kathleen and Allison. Laura and I talk about this all the time. <laughs> I have a really short answer, so okay, I'll just... Um, the PD that I think teachers need is regular and job-embedded. Um, and I think that um, it has to be focused on that instructional practice, allowing teachers to actually practice doing it, getting feedback, and then going back in. I think the, the days of pulling teachers out for these large-scale sit-and-gets... Um, are they, sh they, they are and should be large and should have been largely over, but um, it's, it's got to happen. The closer it happens to the classroom and the closer it happens um, with, with kids, the better. I guess I would add to that that I think teachers, the greatest value that teachers can get in the realm of professional development is to see themselves as lifelong learners mm -hmm. and that you don't master teaching. Every variable that that you considered when you were a, a novice teacher has changed. And it will continue to change. So your skill set needs to be dynamic and it needs to be adaptable. And I think what we need to do is we need to sometimes give teachers a little bit more autonomy to make decisions about the instruction that they provide. And we need to be not so focused on resources, but we need to focus on learning. And what does the learner need to be successful, not what does the teacher need? And so giving teachers choices and not, not being so mired in that lockstep scope and sequence kind of instructional continuum that ensures that um, parents can communicate and say that we did page 16, didn't you do page 16? It's what does your child and what does this group of children need to have presented to them and in what way that's going to make learning occur for them. So I think creating some level of autonomy and support for the way in which they tap into the strategies that they've, they've developed over a, a career is really important to professional learning. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you again for joining us um, this evening. I think we can all appreciate how nuanced the issues are that we've discussed um, given the informative uh, panel. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.